Supercharged, a podcast focusing on renewable energy and the passion behind the movement. Supercharged is a thoughtful journey through renewable energy sustainability and an integrated lifestyle. Subscribe and listen each week as we chat with thought leaders, influencers, and those who simply choose to live a better way. And hopefully along the way, you too will be inspired to live Supercharged. This is Kevin Pruitt with another episode of Supercharge, the podcast. And I have a very special guest with me today, Dr. Gemma Green. Dr. Green, thank you for joining us on Supercharged. Thank you for having me. It is such a pleasure. And I, I've got to tell you a very funny story and just it just kind of illustrates her sense of humor. So when we had just first connected on LinkedIn and in the States, Gemma is almost always spelled with a G instead of a J. So I literally wrote her a note and said, you know, Gemma, thanks. And I, I spelled it with a G and then I caught myself and I said, I am terribly sorry. That is really a pet peeve of mine to spell names right. And she said, no problem, Kevin, and spelled it with a C. So I, <laughs> I'm going to like this lady because she has an incredible sense of humor. But uh, yeah, I, I really appreciate you just taking the time and just chatting with us today. But tell the, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, I'm a proud Western Australian um, from Perth, um, but uh, my mother is Italian and my father is Irish, uh, so it's a, a very that's uh, a fiery Irish combination. <laughs> and um, yeah, I lived for eleven years in London. I worked in banking, and I moved back here nine years ago. Um, did a PhD in electricity market disruption, and got some of the ideas from that along with um, the insights from my business partner, John Bullich, on um, creating Power Ledger. And we set up the company five years ago now, um, really with, um, you know, the vision of the company is democratization of power for a sustainable future. And, you know, we could see that the energy markets had been altering from a centralized, largely fossil fuel-based system um, to one that incorporated a lot of renewable energy driven by um, renewable energy targets in countries around the world and subsidised feed-in tariffs. And that was very effective at growing renewable energy um, to a point, but that is a very blunt price signal that was encouraging a lot of renewables to be built in places where there wasn't demand uh, and also at times of the day where there wasn't demand, creating a time and place problem. And that is really bad for the grid. If you, if you have too much energy, uh, where it's not needed, then you need to transport it right. to where it's needed, and that's expensive. And if you produce energy at a time when it's not needed, that causes issues um, with voltage and reactive power, and um, that's also very expensive to solve as well. And uh, so we could see the really the, the grid breaking from this um, centralized uh, approach. And really, there's no such thing as a price of energy. There's really only a price of energy at a particular place at a particular time. Um, but if you want to actually make that a reality, you need a market that can provide those price signals and allow counterparties that are in particular places at particular times to trade and settle with each other. And that's really the concept of power ledger. How do we um, scale renewables, get to 24-7 you know, renewable power without driving up electricity costs? How do you better utilize the renewables that are in the system uh, whilst driving down electricity costs. 
Um, so yeah, that's basically the kind of premise of it. We've been, we're now, we've now got more than 20 clients in 10 countries and there's a, quite a diverse landscape, but they're all centered around this premise, really growing renewables in a scalable way. Uh, and yeah, I have um, uh, uh, three children, a five-year-old, a three-year-old and uh, a one-year-old and Powell Ledger's business is mainly based in Perth, but we also have people in the US, in Europe, in London, in Japan, um, and some in, on the East Coast of Australia as well. So is this like a, a private sector approach to a nor normally a public sector issue? Uh, I would say, yeah, I mean, it's, we, you know, we're, we're, you know, a privately held company that has come up with a, a solution that we see as a missing piece of the jigsaw puzzle, because because of the centralised planning of renewables, um, what you see is in countries that have a high penetration of variable renewable energy. So that's energy that comes from solar and wind, right. um, not, not from like a hydropower plant that, right. that provides dispatchable power. So there's variable power and dispatchable power. And in countries that have high penetration of variable renewable energy, um, which was brought about largely from what's called a feed-in tariff, so that's basically if you export electricity to the grid, you get a certain amount of money from the, the grid. Um, uh, and that um, way of planning caused the time and place problem I just spoke about. And what you see is a correlation, a strong positive correlation between penetration of variable renewable energy and electricity costs. So uh, in Germany, for example, you have more than 50% variable renewable energy and the highest electricity costs in the world. Wow. And and there's, so there's, if, you, if you look at a graph of that, um, and as a result of that, there is resistance to grow renewables uh, because people don't want to push up electricity prices. So yeah. on the one hand, you've got, you know, the climate movement, uh, you know, saying, you know, the planet's burning, we need to, um, you know, get to 100% renewables, even if it pushes up electricity prices, even if it causes brownouts or blackouts in our electricity grids. And I think understandably, you've got the other end of the spectrum that says, actually, I don't want those things. I would like stable electricity. I would like low cost electricity. And I don't want renewable energy if it's gonna result in all of that. And so our solution is really a missing piece of the jigsaw puzzle to be able to grow renewables without the pushing up electricity prices, without impacting system stability. Because what our system does is it provides a solution for utilities to encourage the growth of renewables for when and where it is needed. And also it provides a solution for big multinational companies that have perhaps made commitments around um, renewable energy. So say they've said they're gonna be 100% yeah. renewable. There's many ways that they could go about doing that. And the traditional way of doing that would be to um, buy some solar from a solar farm, wind from a wind farm, and then supplement that with uh, what's called a renewable energy certificate. Mm -hmm. which is um, uh, it's a, a certificate that says one megawatt hour of renewable power was produced somewhere sometime. So for example, if you're in New York, you could buy a certificate from California um, to cover your consumption in New York, um, but, which was resulting in, in energy being produced in, New York, in California, but not in New York and exacerbating this problem. And this year in 2021, we've seen Google and Microsoft recognize that that is not a great way um, to, um, to get to 100% um, renewable energy. 
and they've adopted a new standard called 24-7 CFE or carbon-free energy. And what that actually means is that they are matching their energy consumption uh, with renewable energy at that time and at that place. So if they're consuming energy in New York on a Wednesday at 3 p.m., they're purchasing renewable energy at that same time and same place. And they've promised to do that by 2030. Um, and so they're no longer going to buy certificates in California if they were. Um, in fact, the ones that they have that they've purchased, they're going to sell those. And then they're going to encourage uh, renewable energy to be built in New York. So it might be a biogas plant. It might be battery storage. Um, it, it might be uh, hydropower. Um, so they're, you know, it, they're, they're now looking at how do we encourage growth of renewables in New York, as this example, um, when, we, when and where we need it to facilitate the growth of renewables in the grid um, in a way that is scalable, i.e. matching demand at time right, and place. Right. So this isn't and, like an offset. This is not like a kind of the principle of like a carbon offset or, or something like this. This is, this is actual almost purchasing energy. Yeah. yeah. Well, you could be purchasing the energy or you could purchase the certificate from that energy at that time and place, which is actually the same thing. Right. Um, yes. But it's not just so, like growing one in like California's producing something and New York can buy it just to make them feel better about themselves type thing. It's, it really correct. is a, it's yeah. buying energy that they need. Yeah. So. I mean, there was, there's other versions of it as well with um, power purchase agreements, which is basically you agree to buy the energy from a solar farm or a wind farm. But there's something called a virtual PPA, which is basically where you buy cheap energy from Texas when you're in New York and then take the certificates off, sell the energy in the grid there and then buy energy from where you are. And that was another way of, um, of doing, doing the same thing, which was exacerbating this time and place right. problem. Right. And so our platform is a solution for those multinationals that want to go from 100% renewable energy to 24-7 renewable energy. So what our system does is, and we record all this on the blockchain, is track all their energy load profile um, and then all of their buying of um, power purchase agreements and certificates. And we basically create, a, a, we identify how far they are along that journey. So they might be 53%. Um, and then we help them fill the gaps and trim the excess. So if they've got gaps, they need to buy PPAs or RECs, they can do that with PowerLedger. And if they need to sell those PPAs and RECs, they can do that with us as well. So we simplify that process so it doesn't take up 365 days of their year right. and um, make it easy for them to transition from 100% renewable energy to 24-7 carbon-free energy. So that's part of what our platform does supporting multinationals. And then we also offer a similar solution for electricity grid operators to be able to put local price signals, you know, on Kevin Street to grow renewables um, up to the point where there's demand, but not beyond that, um, as opposed to this uh, flat feed-in tariff price signal, which was encouraging too many people on Kevin Street to put in renewables. And that the, res the consequence of that is that the grid operator had to spend say $30 million upgrading a substation, and that $30 million is spread across everyone's electricity costs. Right. Um, yeah, so that, that's the, the old model, I would say. And in the new energy paradigm, it's all about local energy markets and local price signals and matching uh, renewable energy generation with demand in the same time and the same place.
That it is, it's amazing that uh, I mean, when I, I was watching another interview you were you were doing, and you were kind of explaining just the whole idea, even on a, more of a micro level, where you were saying, you know, even even individual energy producers that sell in you know energy back to the grid, so to speak. But it's amazing how how finite you can get. You know, I I, I very quickly you know not know what the heck I'm talking about, but it's it's amazing how precise you can be about, you know, the the energy needs versus the energy cost versus, you know, kind of that balance that you're you're always looking for and trying to trying to achieve through power ledger. Yeah, well I think that, you know, energy is not like cocoa beans. You can't just store it in a cupboard. And right. you do need that about it does need to be that granular and specific um, for the system to work for a grid that works for everyone, which is something that is, you know, our purpose is, you know, clean energy that works for everyone on the planet. And if we don't get that specific in an efficient way, um, you know, it will push up electricity prices and uh, lower income households won't be able to afford to heat their houses in the winter, which is sadly the situation happening in Europe and the UK right now. Mm. Um, and, or, you know, in Texas because of the, the blackout so right. affordable energy is so important uh, and also it's not just in high income oecd countries but also in developing countries that perhaps don't have electricity electrification um, for economic development is really important as well to bring people out of poverty so uh, it's not till you get that granular and specific that you can actually solve these problems efficiently and so, you know, our tool of choice is using the blockchain to record that, you know, we see it as a useful tool. You can do many of the things without a blockchain in the same way that you can have a supermarket without barcodes. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not like you go to the supermarket, I'm going to this supermarket because of the barcodes, you know, nobody <laughs> says this. Um, but the supermarket that has barcodes has good stock control. Uh, yep. And then when you go through the tills, there's not someone punching in things off, you know, price tickets. And making mistakes so there's less errors um so the whole thing is more seamless efficient and mm -hmm. scalable and in in the case sorry i have a three-year-old downstairs that you might be hearing not at all <laughs> that's just adding to the ambiance <laughs> <laughs> um so uh yeah that using the blockchain is good for tracking these things but as we as the markets mature in uh, in blockchain markets that is and electricity markets and the willingness to be able to trade and settle using digital currency increases, then the real power of the blockchain can be realized because you can actually settle in digital currency. Yeah. And um, even though I may not know the counterparty that I'm trading with, that I trust the system, the recording system, and I know, and I know that I'm going to get paid um, in an efficient way. And I think that's where, you know, utilizing smart contracts and, um, to you know, perform complex functions without a central intermediary right. um, to drive down costs and improve trust is where you're going to see the real power and excitement of this new energy paradigm and and what's possible as a result of it. And it it keeps you know the U.S. or China from also <laughs> intervening in, in the transactions as well. So it's uh, it is the democratization even on the the cryptocurrency side. You know that if that's if that's the exchange. You know the the fiat or whatever that you want to you consider, but so is this built on a specific uh, blockchain? Is it built on Ethereum? Is it built on uh, you know? Is there are there other options out there? And and are you looking to use 
a cryptocurrency as the as the kind of central exchange or value exchange? Um, we created a digital token. It's called the Power Token, P-O-W-R. And it's an access token to use the Power Ledger platform. So our clients can pay uh, for access to the platform in power. They can also pay in cash. If they pay in cash, they don't get the money back. Whereas if they pay in power, um, then we escrow that while they're using the platform. And if they stop using the platform, then they can actually get the power tokens returned to them. They come out of the smart contract and then they could benefit from the appreciation in a value of the power token or, um, or you know, just get, get that value back. And is that a self-contained token? Is it only for this purpose or is it, yeah. is it actually a, an exchange of value outside uh, of power ledger? Well, yeah, so we created the token in 2017 and we issued it to the market um, uh, under what's called an initial coin offering. Right. And we did the first of its kind in Australia and we raised about 28 million US dollars, about 34 million Australian. And that token, the power token is traded on more than a dozen cryptocurrency exchanges around the world. And there's quite a lot of trading volume around that. Last time I looked in September, I think there was like $2 billion of trading activity in that month. So there's quite a lot of um, liquidity around it. And uh, in terms of um, our clients, as I said, they can pay in cash or in power to access the Power Ledger platform, but they're incentivized to pay in power relative to cash for those reasons. Right. And we basically, so far, we've only um, escrowed a modest amount, seven and a half million power tokens, but um, it's really proving up the model in all the countries that we're operating in and the willingness for clients to utilize power. Uh, and so it, it, is, it, does, it is used for that purpose, but there is a new purpose that we've just um, devised, uh, which is uh, for the Power Ledger Energy blockchain. And we moved from, so the power token is actually an Ethereum-based token, what's called an ERC20 token standard. And um, power will remain on the Ethereum blockchain, but we moved for our record record-keeping system for energy transactions from an Ethereum-based blockchain, not the Ethereum blockchain, but one um, based upon that. Right. It was a private consortium um, chain to um, a Solana-based blockchain, mm -hmm. which is the Power Ledger Energy blockchain. And the reason we moved from Ethereum, an Ethereum-based chain to a Solana-based chain is that Ethereum could only process 10 to 12 transactions per second, and Solana can process 50,000 to 65,000 transactions per second so it's you know it's night and day and for the purposes of local energy markets and 24 7 carbon free energy there's a lot of transactions involved a lot of record keeping and you need that throughput sure. and so we saw ethereum is not fit for purpose and distinct from our competitors that have are using and will continue to use ethereum we see that as a real point of difference yeah um, we've got a solution that is so fit for purpose for electricity markets and really scalable. So I think that that is another piece around that. So, and in terms of that blockchain, we're allowing staking on the blockchain. So power token holders can maintain a node on that blockchain and stake some of their power tokens and receive a reward for doing so. So that is another use case for the power token staking. Um, and then there are other use cases that we're developing as well, but the power token is being used as a transfer of value um, as well with the, the activity that's on the cryptocurrency exchanges. So I'd say that there's 
several existing use cases and many um, new ones that will be developed as well. I, as you were saying, as you were talking, I was thinking that exact same thing. I'm thinking, may, it sounds like to me that we're almost just scratching the surface of what this could be in, in three to five years. And it is, it's amazing. It's kind of like how how computer memory what doubles every 18 months or something like that. I'm just the storage yeah. capacity or whatever. I mean, the blockchain is is even exponentially, you know, more rapidly expanding. And it's it's funny. I was listening to another podcast, you know, with the the founder of Ethereum, and he was talking about that transactional, um, I guess, limit that they have. You know, that you mentioned, and how Solano could do do it so much quicker. You know, just he can see that incredibly quicker, and it was amazing. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of research going on with Ethereum to be able to deal with that, and they haven't got very far yet. Mm. Um, so there's things you would hear concepts like layer two and sharding, which is effectively connecting other blockchains to that blockchain to the Ethereum blockchain, but that th it's not tested, and it might get up to like a hundred transactions per second. So it's yeah. still like you know significantly less. Um, throughput and so the ability to really um, you know achieve the vision of some of these companies that are attached to um, Ethereum will, will be definitely limited. It, it is amazing to see just what you've accomplished. I mean when when was Power Ledger what year was it started? Uh, we formed the company in 2016 and um, in 2015 that was the year when the cost of uh, wind and solar fell below fossil fuels for the first time. And, um, you know, everyone thought, oh, the energy revolution is happening and not recognising this whole time and place problem. They were like, oh, the price of solar fell below, you know, coal and wind, but we didn't appreciate this sort of, um, these other issues. Oh, it's not in the right time and not at the right place. So therefore, we're actually driving up system costs if we don't co-locate uh, the energy near to where it's consumed at the time when it needs to be consumed. And uh, so I think it was really, you know, the ideas were brought about starting to recognise the, the challenges with renewable energy. Um, but if you take a step back in terms of the blockchain, like in 2007, I was working in um, JP Morgan at the time and the desk that I was uh, working on um, with, in equity derivatives had made like hundreds of millions of dollars every year for you know several three years I think and at the end of 2007 it lost all of the profits that it made in the preceding three years and I don't and you know that was when we began to lose lose trust in our banking system yep, yep. you know there was the the you know the Reserve Bank and um, European banks and prime ministers and presidents around the world were like you know how do we restore trust in the banking system and the governments all did the banking bailouts, you know, and it's no accident that, you know, Satoshi Nakamoto wrote the white paper um, for the Bitcoin that same time, mm -hmm. um, you know, saying that that these institutions, we need to trust these institutions for them to exist. And that here's a, here's a better solution that doesn't require us to trust the institutions. Um, so I think that the you know, the, the underlying technology Bitcoin came about as a result of this um, phenomena that, you know, the global financial crisis and, and a reaction to it, a solution to it, not propping up um, the institutions further, but another way, another approach. And then I would say that Power Ledger was born about, um, you know, off the back of recognising that this way of um, dealing with renewable energy 
really was not working and we need a, 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 a system that deals with time and place and um, can deal with that complexity and trust without lots of centralised parties that drive up costs ultimately sitting between them. I, I mean, I know so many times like people that start companies, it's, it's almost like this, this two-factor you know, equation that says you know, it's certainly a, an economic opportunity and, and a need but it, there's also sometimes just driven out of just who they are as individuals and what's driving them internally. So when you go back and you think about, you know, your own journey, your own personal journey, what was kind of driving you personally that would lead you to start something like Power Ledger? I, I feel like it was an accident. Like <laughs> I, um, I, I just had my first child, um, my five-year-old, Emily, and I met my business partner, John Bullich. And uh, I mean, Emily was seven weeks old when we when we met for the first time. And like three months later, we set up Power Ledger and we just thought, oh, this is an interesting idea. Let's let's pursue it. Um, so I don't think we really appreciated, you know, how all consuming it would become. And also, you know, that how, you know, how fascinated it and curious that we'd become around what we could, what could come of this. So yeah, it's easy to kind of look back now and go, oh, well, that was a huge decision, but it didn't feel like it at the time. It just felt like a, or not quite the decision of, you know, what are you going to have for lunch? But, you know, it didn't feel like it, it was a, a, as big a decision as it's ended up being. And then uh, I think if I look back, like I grew up on a farm and like conservation, and sustainability, I think, was stuff that was really kind of innate. Like I remember when uh, when I was, um, I think, about seven or eight years old, um, my dad invited our primary school to come to the farm and plant trees. And um, yeah, the, the uh, like a busload of kids came to our farm, and basically we yeah we planted trees, um, like reforestation um, work. And yeah, I think that I've been really fascinated around sustainability and looking at you know how is it is it just a is it just about like some ethical thing or is there a way that it can actually both you know um be for good and also make profit as well mm. um because those things yeah. used to be um separate right. like it, like you had to choose between one or the other but i actually think now that they are intimately linked and i think that that I think we're really fascinated around how do we actually um, do good and, um, you know, and benefit those that are participating in that. And the democratization of power concept is really about citizens becoming citizen utilities and being paid for the contribution that they're making to the system as well. And also providing renewable energy to other people that perhaps can't afford a solar panel or, you know, battery system too. So it's really about how do the benefits um, uh, 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 be shared um, amongst those that are participating in the system rather than just by centralized parties. I mean, it's like equitable and efficient, you know, how do we kind of add those two elements into, into the equation? But it's funny, you were, you were talking about the, you know, it, it, it wasn't quite as easy as we just went to lunch and decided that this is what we we're going to do. But I'm thinking, I doubt you would have been quite as passionate if you were working on like a hair care products idea or something like that. I mean, there had to be something inherent in you. Yeah. You mentioned, you know, growing how you grew up, but, you know, you mentioned Bitcoin as well. I mean, it's the same thing. It's like, 
it's almost out of need or out of necessity, you know, some of these, the, the greatest inventions are created. And it was the perfect storm for Bitcoin or for this white paper to be written. You know, as you mentioned, kind of the banking crisis and the lack of trust and all these things that were kind of, you know, this great global recession that we were in the middle of, you know, in 2008, 2009 as well. But if, do you think that if renewable energy was not um, as comparable in price to, say, fossil fuels, do you think that people would care about it as much as they do right now? Yeah, I'll be right back. I'll take it. Thanks. Um, sorry. That's all right. So, I mean, I think that the renewable energy um, uh, movement was set about by subsidies from government to deal with the high cost. Like, for example, a household solar panel system was like more than $25,000. Um, and so governments were offering feeding tariffs of like 40 cents and 50 cents a kilowatt hour to encourage people to purchase them right. and drive down. And, you know, that caused... You know, what Roger's diffusion curve says is, you know, the unit cost of a product goes down the more of it that's produced. So the feed-in tariff encouraged mass production, which drove down the unit cost for solar panels, and it's the same for batteries as well. And so that is, that's, I think, in the past 20 years, the cost was very, was too high, and had it not been subsidised, that that transition to a low unit cost wouldn't have happened as fast. And, that, you know, that's essential that for scale. So, that's kind of artificial, though, like... It's almost like an artificial, like, like, pro like propping up the 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 you know the the what the market for it in essence that that doesn't sound sustainable. That the government is is giving you a rebate or whatever to offset the cost, so the cost comes down. But over time, would the cost not just creep back up if those grants were removed, or is it just uh, more efficient no, production? The unit cost will stay low. So that feed-in tariff started at 50 cents and was tapered down to 40, 30, mm. 20. And now there's no subsidy anymore because the cost, um, it was tapered down based on the unit cost of production declining through okay. mass production. But in answer to your other question was, is that fair? Well, it, it's pretty universally applied to all new sectors. So most mm. new sectors receive some kind of, you know, government subsidy to get a leg up. So airline travel, for example, um, railways, um, other like technologies, industrial chemistry, um, you know, all of these things were subsidized in the early years through R&D um, yeah. grants or other mechanisms. Credit, and even the fossil, the fossil fuel industry, the nuclear industry, um, even today, there's a lot of, you know, subsidies that sit behind these industries. So, um, you know, they might not be visible to us, but, you know, at, at first glance, but they definitely exist. So I would say that's very commonplace. And the usual way that actually innovation would happen, um, uh, yeah, I would say it's a bit quite unusual for it to happen the other way. Yeah, yeah, that 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 makes perfect sense. And I, like I said, you are you. I I can certainly exhaust my my knowledge of this sector in a, in a very short conversation. But I, I am fascinated by the work that you're doing. You know, with Power Ledger. And what do you what do you see? What are some of the 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 wins? The early wins that you've seen you know, since this, since Power Ledger was launched? Well, um, we've done a project in Uttar Pradesh in India, working with the government there, a peer-to-peer -peer demonstration project. And that resulted in the, um, the regulator changing the rules 
only eight weeks ago and announcing a decree to allow peer-to-peer -peer trading across the whole state, which is the largest and most popular state in India, 225 million people. Wow. Um, yeah, so, um, you know, that I think is one example. And they saw our project in Thailand, which we put in in Bangkok in 2018, and were like, oh, could you do something similar for us there? In, in like Europe, there's since 2018, there's been a regulatory change called the Clean Energy Package, which mm -hmm. is allowing energy sharing and require as the 27 member countries in Europe to implement energy sharing rules through their parliament. So that's afoot right now, but we've got projects in Europe that are showing these models for energy communities and energy sharing. So for example, a school could set up and become a retailer and offer electricity to the mums and dads and the mums and dads could sell their surplus solar and battery storage to others within that energy community. Um, and it's all around like close proximity trading. So they need solutions for that. So we're developing solutions for that market. So sometimes it's regulation that, you know, is becoming more favorable and other times it's the projects, the demonstration projects we're doing, which are uh, shifting the regulations. And, um, but notwithstanding that, like the, uh, like in US, there's a rule change announced in September last year called the FERC 2222, which basically means anyone we can participate directly in a wholesale electricity market. So that's very significant and there's implementation going on around that. And in Australia, we have what's called the two-sided market initiative, which is very similar. So I, I think that that um, the zeitgeist around the new energy paradigm, mm -hmm. you know, is, is afoot, um, but, you know, there are many countries that, you know, don't want to push up electricity prices and need a way to do that in an inefficient fashion so that yep. it doesn't, um, uh, you know, cause hardship and also drive industry out of that, that place because, you know, searching for cheaper electricity. Right. I, I, I mean, it is, it is incredibly fascinating what, what you have going in. And I mean, as I think is, it's like the, the world is, is your market. I mean, in so many ways. I mean, I, I can't even see a cap on this. There's no glass ceiling that says, you know, you, you know, can you, maybe it's, maybe it is just governments that, that can't come to an agreement on what this should look like would be the only, the only hindrance, I think, down the road. What do you think? Well, I think, I think it's more, they need models that work because it's all well and good to, you know, be at the COP uh, in Glasgow and make these net zero commitments and lots of motherhood statements, but they need a way to do it in an efficient fashion. Yep. Otherwise, you know, they're going to come back and go, oh, we didn't hit the targets. And, um, you know, it is it, it, the, the, the subsidized approach, the tariff, you know, your way into the renewable market is an old model. It worked for low penetration of renewables. It's not going to get them from 20 to 40 to 50 percent and beyond mm. um, without causing all these, you know, commensurate problems that I mentioned. Yep. So I, I think that it'll be the innovators. And that's what we're seeing, like in the 10 countries that we're operating in. It's like the forward-facing um, partners that want to get ahead of this and actually figure out, oh, I'm not going to be an engineering solution on the grid. It's not about substations and capacitor banks and transformers now. It's about how do I flexibly manage the system hmm. and what price signals do I need to put in to get that right outcome so I can avoid or defer the upgrade of the substation. Um, so we're asking engineers to become marketeers and, you know, that, that takes time. So our, our approach has been really to partner with those um, that, you know, that, that want to be at the forefront of this. And then we see the innovation working its way into the core. 
That is, like I said, this is such a fascinating space. And I, I, I could continue to ask you questions all day, but you've actually got business to run and families to lead. So I, I, I have one other question I'd like to kind of close with today. Yeah. And it's, do you see this um, on a real micro sense? Do you see this almost like a uh, becoming almost a personal barter system, like peer-to-peer -peer barter? So like you mentioned, like the parents in schools or whatever, I could almost see parents producing energy in the household, providing the energy to the school to get some tuition offset or something like that. I mean, what's the, yeah. what is the, um, the, the roadmap? We, we actually have a solution um, called Solar Swap, which is doing that. And we've launched it in Australia with a beer company. So households can sell their surplus solar to the, the brewery. I, and they I get remember paid hearing that, yeah. In cartons of beer delivered to their house now. Alcohol is not my favorite topic, but uh, it necessarily, but it, you know, it's, um, uh, you know, you can use this with other goods and services. Sure. So, um, you know, it, it provides a new pathway to purchase. And in the case of the beer company, they're so innovative. They've basically gone getting to 100% renewables and they're looking at new ways to engage their customers around their sustainability journey. It's, it's really amazing to see. Um, then they're looking at, you know, how do they incorporate other products and services in um, to the to the network as well. Um, so I think that this can be used. We're doing it actually in Europe as well with a wine wine producers. So uh, households are selling their surplus solar to the winery and being paid in wine delivered to their. You're hitting right at the heart of the matter. <laughs> like, what are the what do people care most about? <laughs> burgers and wine and beer exactly yeah right um, that is the heart but, of the matter but, but swapping you know energy for goods and services i absolutely think that is you know a trojan horse and i i think there's a lot that is going to be done with that in the yeah, future it is going to be exciting to see Gemma, thank you so much for just taking time today. I know you've got a very busy schedule and just, but I, I, this is such a fascinating conversation. And I think we really are just on just scratching the surface to what this can be down the road. And it's going to be exciting to follow. Um, if people want to want to kind of follow the trail of Power Ledger, where's the best place to follow? And, and do you know, I encourage them to look at the crypto power as well. <laughs> yeah, um, you can. Uh, we've got a website, powerledger.io, and you can follow Power on uh, Coin Market Cap. All right, Gemma, thank you again for taking time and just speaking into the kind of the why behind the whole idea of renewable energy and the passion behind the movement. Gemma, have a great day. Thank you so much. Bye.